Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, change makers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. I loved talking to Piper Perabo for this week's show. She is an award-nominated actress with a 20-year career, but she's been doing fascinating work in the last few years, using her Instagram platform and her voice to help empower other people around human rights, women's rights, and encouraging people to become more politically involved. So hearing her story and also hearing more about her work in acting and what lights her up was really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Piper, thank you so much for being here today on Impact the World. It's a thrill to meet you because The Prestige is one of my favorite movies and you have such a pivotal key role in that story. Thank you. Um, but one of the things that I've loved about you and your work recently, you have, if you look at IMDb, you have over 35 movie credits, 10 television credits. You were Golden Globe nominated for Covert Affairs. So you've got this 20 year history in television and film. But what I've really loved watching uh, over the last couple of years is how passionate you've become about human rights, women's rights, and you're an advisor for Vote Run Lead, which is an amazing organization. So it's a big, it's a big kind of, I mean, there's things I want to delve into, but perhaps before we go to the more political side of what you've been doing recently, how did you first get into acting and becoming an actor? I started acting, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's like really an honor to talk with you. And this is so fun and cool. <laughs> um, I started acting as a kid, you know, before I really knew it was a job or something that you could do for a living. My brothers and the kids in the neighborhood, we would like do plays in the vacant lot and like invite the parents of the neighborhood sort of as, as a game. Yeah. And then as I got older, um, you could do the plays in school. You know, there were school, we went to the public schools and they had school plays. And then I realized I could study that in college, so I did. Not really knowing um, how to get into the business aspect of it or how that would even work. I just knew that's what really turned me on. You know, it's the kind of thing that I could work on and sort of never get tired. I don't even notice that I'm hungry. I'm just so interested and I can just keep going. And it just seemed like there was always more and more. So when I graduated college, I, I moved to New York and I mean, it was, it took me like, I should never tell this story, but it like 30 days I got a movie. I was waitressing and going on auditions and I got one so fast and I really had no idea. I'd only studied theater, so I really didn't know how to transition into any other medium, but I just sort of jumped in and asked for help. So what was it like then when Coyote Ugly, which was your second full-length movie? Third, third, third. What was it like when that became this kind of big phenomenon to, to be so kind of new in the industry and be one of the leads in this big hit film? It was difficult because I didn't have any 
friends who had already done that. So I didn't have people that I could say have, you know, like they used to have those like idiot's guides, like idiot's mm -hmm. guides, like programming your thermostat. Yeah. <laughs> there is no like idiot's guide to your movies coming out this summer. And I didn't even know who to ask. And when you read magazine articles, that's really a show. That's really, you know, to sell the glamour. That's not really how to do it. So it was a lot. Uh, it was kind of overwhelming, and I just thought, I'm just going to focus on doing the thing that I have to do today or even this morning as well as I can and then do the next thing, and hopefully that'll pile up into doing a good job. If I tried to look at the whole thing, I, I couldn't sort of manage that. Yeah, because one of the things I'm always struck by is we have this idea of success, you know, and we're trained, to, oh, wouldn't it be great if this happens, but so rarely are the coping skills for a sudden level of success that you get thrust into given to you. And, and I think especially there is this illusion about Hollywood and the movie industry and the record industry and, you know, all the stories of the disorientation, the isolation that people go through and the shock of suddenly being known uh, before you're perhaps ready to know how to handle that. Yeah, and being known has nothing to do with the work. Mm. You know, what I found most helpful when I'm acting on film and television is it's when I'm doing the acting, when I'm on set and we're filming. That's my work. And once we've got it in the can, I have to let go of it because how they're going to edit it, the publicity, whose face is on the poster, what's being put on television, that I have no control over. I heard this um, interview once with an Olympic uh, crew rower. You know, they roll like a single skull. And the, the guy was in the same heat as like the world champion. And the you know ESPN guy was asked him, he was like, are you nervous to be in the same heat with the best in the world? And he said, I'm not gonna worry about him because his race is outside my boat. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna do my work the best I can because that's what I can control. Yeah, and that's such a great attitude for anything in life. Yeah, it's totally. Like, you know, um, my husband, Stephen, taught me the kind of one thing at a time, one day at a time uh, analogy a few years ago, and that's really helped me kind of keep everything kind of small when things feel big, because it's easy, especially in today's climate, to be overwhelmed. And then paralysis comes, mm -hmm. and then you don't do anything right where you yeah. could have just done one, and that was very manageable. Yeah. And now you've been in the business for 20 years. I bet it's enjoyable for you to be able to help out those younger actors who you see have just come through the gate and are perhaps a little bit, I, be, I bet that's a really nice. It's really nice, especially with young female actresses. Yeah. I recognize those pressures and the confusion of sort of coming into the business and the visual expectation that's placed on them. And so I did a movie, it hasn't even come out yet, but. Uh, this comedian and I play parents in a movie, and the girl who plays our teenage daughter, he, the guy who played my husband came up to me and he said, I think we should pull her aside. And I said, what? what? And he said, I don't think she's sleeping. I just feel like she's not really taking care of herself. I just thought, so cool that we're at a place in our careers where now we're checking on the next, you know, generation of people coming up. And I said, OK, let's pull her aside. And he said, you come with me, because I don't want her to feel like it's just a man coming up to her and telling her what she should do. And I said, OK, cool. That's it was great. a really interesting conversation to have among actors. It felt like that kind of old, 
you know, union where yeah. the apprentices are coming up. Totally. No, that's beautiful. And makes me think of something, um, you know, knowing that we were going to have this conversation today, I was curious to see a couple of your interviews from before to learn a little bit more. And you said this really cool thing. Someone just asked you recently about um, the sequel to Coyote Ugly, which apparently Tyra Banks is kind of talking about wanting to do. And you, you had a really cool answer to this interview. You, you said, well, I'm not quite sure what it would be now because obviously we're all older, but you also said back then when the movie came out in 2000, it was like stiletto feminism. Now, I've never heard that term. So, oh. yeah, I'm, I'm curious as well, with a movie like Coyote Ugly, so much has changed in the landscape for women in the last 20 years and what we see as okay and what we don't, thank God. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, you know, do you, do, do you, do you have any idea, like, what, what Coyote Ugly, the sequel, would do? I mean, I know it's not even in production or anything, but... <laughs> Ask Tyra, and it is. I was going to say, maybe we're willing it into a... <laughs> totally. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tyra's willing it into existence. Um, yeah, you know, when it came... I did that movie, I'd been out of college uh, for maybe uh, a year, a little more than a year, and I wasn't that um, political or philosophically studied at that point. I was just sort of keeping my head above water. Mm. And um, But when the movie came out, there was a backlash of feminist writers and talking about like, is this stiletto feminism? Is this demeaning? Uh -huh. Where does this fit? I mean, you have to have this job to follow your dreams and like wet t-shirt contests and liquor and women and crowds. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think about all that. Yeah. And I, you know, it's produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. And right. we did, um, I remember I went on Bill Maher's show, Politically Incorrect, the show he had before, the show he has mm -hmm. now. And I remember thinking like, why should I be on Bill Maher? This seems like politics. I don't really know anything about that. And they were like, just talk about feminism in the movie. And I was like, I don't even, I don't know anything about that. And I went out there and really sort of got my butt kicked and felt really in over my head. And so then I, after the whole process, I was trying to sort of take in what is feminism? What's my place in it? What do I believe? And now that we're where we are, I can see the distance that we've traveled, at least from Coyote Ugly, mm. let alone from what my mother's generation fought for, what my grandmother's generation fought for. So I think um, if we did it again, there's a lot of pieces we'd have to look at. But I still, I mean, that kind of... Um, Cinderella story or like that movie Fame, you know, I love so mm -hmm. much. Like mm -hmm. the idea of the young person who believes in themselves and goes to a city to try and follow their dreams and sort of has to really put in the elbow grease to get somewhere. That's a story that I always relate to and I yeah. feel like is always needed. Yeah. The, the romance of the hard work to get to your dreams, I think is a really important story that we have to keep telling, but we'd need to just adjust some of the other things. Yeah, <laughs> of course. No. Maybe no wet t-shirt dance. <laughs> Maybe not. Well, it's funny because it makes me think of Pretty Woman. And I remember I was 13 when I saw Pretty Woman. And for me, I just completely fell in love with Julia Roberts. And I was 13 years old, so I didn't have any idea of the morality. And then when I was like 18, 19, and I became like a real movie buff, I was reading this article about the morally bankrupt Pretty Woman. And I was like, huh? And it was talking about this. And I, I hadn't even 
hadn't even looked at it. So I think it's interesting because, you know, the, there is energy and there is emotion that we can connect with in a story. And then there is what does this mean for the culture and the, the wider political yeah, landscape. Yeah, and you like to glamorize sex workers mm -hmm. and act like it's how they're going to meet the mm -hmm. love of their life. And like, it just doesn't help us sort of see what's really going on. Yeah. You can't just glamorize it. Yeah. It's a little totally. blind. Yeah. So, um, you now are very much uh, involved from my perspective in the political landscape. And tell, tell us a little bit about um, Vote Run Lead and what it represents. So um, just to back up and say that I, I wasn't very political until this most recent presidential election. I wasn't really paying attention. I don't think, I don't think many of us were, and I think this was a big wake-up call for everybody. From, from what I hear, from what I see, I think this was a slap in the face for everyone. It really was, and I didn't, I certainly didn't recognize my privilege and how I was able to move through the world because of it until mm. the most recent presidential election. The Access Hollywood tapes, when I heard that on the news, mm. it was so shocking for me to realize as a woman that I'm not safe in my own culture. Mm. And I didn't realize that until that moment, and it was terrifying. And then with the Women's March, I'd never been to a march before, and I went to the first, my husband and I and a friend, we went to the first Women's March in Washington, and I just saw this power and this unity and this camaraderie, and there were so many groups that I was totally unaware of that were fighting alongside each other. There was one group of Native American female activists who were singing this song that now I know, which is about the missing and murdered indigenous women um, on reservations and that whole problem, how it's not sort of counted by the federal government because federal law enforcement isn't active on um, mm -hmm. Native American reservations. They sang that song for 12 hours straight, the first women's march in Washington. And now, and I was just like, who are these women? What is this song? I don't even understand the words. But that was my whole kind of experience with that march and trying to figure out where I could participate, not just donate money, because mm -hmm. I felt like that's what I'd been doing before mm -hmm. and it didn't seem to really do a good job. Mm -hmm. yet. I mean, money is important for yeah. political campaigns, the, the right money in the right place. But um, Vote Run Lead was something that uh, I thought was a good idea because it's a nonpartisan um, group that trains women to run for office. Mm. And one of the things that they say, one of their slogans is, run as you are. You know, you don't have to wait. Sometimes you see people running for office, like there's a guy, Mark Kelly, who's going to run for Senate in Arizona, and like, he's an astronaut. You know, you don't have to wait until you're a fighter pilot and an astronaut and you went to Harvard and you have seven kids. And some people think like, oh, I couldn't do it because I don't have all those things. I haven't. But really, each of us is an expert in our community. Mm -hmm. And the life that you've lived, whether it's taking care of elderly parents or taking your children to school or going through the healthcare system yourself, you are an expert in those fields. And because you know the concerns of your community so well, you can be an effective leader for that community. And so you you don't need to wait to run for office. And actually, your life experience is a great asset. And your uniqueness can make you a great candidate because you stand out because of your unique experience. And I like that sort of message that Vote Run Lead brings to women. And they're you know, supporting candidates up and down the ballot, which I also think is important. It can seem like the presidential is the only reason to vote. And some people only vote every four years. But really, your daily life is more connected to your state legislature and your city government. And so having good rep, your sheriff, woo, 
if everybody voted for their sheriff, we'd have a really different law enforcement situation <laughs> in this country. But so voting up and down the ballot and having good candidates up and down the ballot and make sure that we're running competitive races for every seat up and down the ballot, school board, mayor, city councilman, alderman. That's really important to changing our daily lives in America. See, here's the power of everything you just said to me. I listen to you and I feel inspired and hopeful and, oh, cool, that's how it's done. Whereas I think if you just sit back and look at what's reported to us through the media, which, as we know, is filtered and certain lenses anyway, um, you can feel very disempowered, which I, I have always felt. And as an intuitive, this is something that's come through the messages for me in the last years that fear is designed to um, disempower us. So the more we get afraid and the more we are taught to be afraid of what we see going on, the more we're going to crumble inside, pull away and become inactive. But what you've just described to me is like a blueprint for, oh, this is why and how you get involved. And I, I, don't, I hate saying this because, you know, I don't really want to give him more airtime. But if you look at the current president of America, he is a prime example of doesn't matter what your experience is. You can, you know, if, if that's what's going on at the top. Right, if he can then, win the presidency, exactly. you could be mayor of whatever exactly. town you want to be mayor exactly. of. Exactly, and the, the piece that really hits home is you say, you know, we, the people, are the ones having the direct experience of what's going on in the community, negative and positive. So we are the advocates of, no, no, this is a problem in the community, and how are we going to figure it out? And when you're talking about a state legislature race or sheriff, those races are won and lost by a couple hundred votes. Mm. So if you want to really be a part of change and you door knock for a candidate that you believe in, you can move that race. I mean, just calling all your friends and getting them to door knock for a day, volunteering at a campaign headquarters for a campaign that, you, uh, that you've heard them speak and you think like, that's the right idea. Mm. That's the right idea. I want to hear more. I want to push these ideas out here. You can really move things. And even a race like Sheriff, which I've become so obsessed with, Sheriff, to run for sheriff in a lot of places costs about $11,000. It's not mm. millions and millions. So if you don't like policing in your community, you can run for sheriff or you can support someone who should be running the sheriff's department. And that's going to have a trickle down effect into all law enforcement in your community. Would you ever go into politics? I mean, in a way, I think you, you are. I think, you know, in a way you are. But, but I'm curious, like, you know, given your, your interest and your passion and, and everything you've been learning and studying, would it interest you to go into it? I th it could be interesting to me. I want to learn more about it. Mm. You know, as I become friends with people who are serving in elected office, I've been spending more time with them to see what's the reality of doing that job. Like with acting, you know, you think the reality of being in a movie is one thing, but really it's very different. Mm. And so if I were to ever make a huge career change, I would want to be really informed about it because I love the work that I do. I'm so yeah. passionate about it. I wouldn't give it up for some imagined idea or some imagined idea of power. And I also think what's interesting about the job I have now is, someone said this to me, it's pretty bold, but I thought it was exciting. They said, you know, if you run for office, you can't knock on every door, but you can be on every television if you're an actor. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh yeah, I should be real conscious of letting go of this bird before I go reach, you know what I mean? I'm so grateful for getting to do the job that I love. It's like people who have a swimming pool, 
You know, people who have a swimming pool in their backyard never swim in it. They sort of take it for granted. It's only when their friends come over, they're just like, oh, let's get in your pool. So I want to make sure I have this job that I love so much. I don't want to take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I love what you say because it's so true. That was one of the most striking things to me about watching you over this last year or so. It's like, oh, it was more intriguing to me that you were taking your existing platform and talking to us on the platform and educating us about politics than, oh, here's a new political candidate. So I think there's something really powerful to that. And speaking to that, you know, have you ever been nervous? Because I've spoken to lots of people um, who are politically nervous anyway. But then I think of people who, you know, are in the public eye. I, I briefly mentioned to you before we started the show that I just watched Kathy Griffin's documentary yeah. about what happened to her. Now, you know, I'm a fan of Kathy for Me many too. years and I, I really wish someone had been there to advise her the day that that photo was going to come out because... But, but then what happened to her afterwards was just unbelievable and... and, and disproportionate. Re really disproportionate. And if, if she'd been male, it wouldn't have happened. Hmm. So it just That's wouldn't. interesting. It just wouldn't. Did she say in the documentary, not that you can go back, but if she can go back, would she change what she did? No, she actually said she wouldn't, which yeah, is amazing. I believe that. When she talks about what she lost, um, but she said it's really given her clarity. It really mm. showed her who her friends were because she said she lost virtually all of her friends. There were a handful that stuck by her, but she said most people pulled away because they didn't want to be in the firing zone. And, and I'm curious, like, wh what are you noticing about the political climate with artists, creators that you know? Because I notice at award shows that I've seen over the last couple of years, if someone makes a political statement from the stage, I see everyone sitting at the award show and about half the people will stand up, clap, support, and a lot of other people look quiet. And I don't think it's just because they necessarily have different political views. I sense the hesitation, understandably, in the room of being a public person who can be taken down by one headline or one tweet or being misinterpreted, which we know can happen a lot in the press anyway. Yeah, I think... Um... It's scary to speak out publicly, you know, whether you're doing it at the height that Kathy Griffin is doing it or whether you're just standing up in your city council meeting and demanding clarity on an issue or demanding that the city council listen to you. I remember doing that as a kid. I stood up and asked a question at city council meeting. I was just sweating, yeah. you know, to have all the attention on you and to say what you believe. That takes some yeah. courage. Um, and I was... I, I got arrested. Um, I protested the Brett Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. I wanted to ask you, I, I wanted, this, is, this is one of the most fascinating things to me. I wanted to ask you about this. So one, as I started to get interested in politics, one of the things I realized was that I didn't know what I was talking about yet. And so I just was passionate, but I wasn't that informed. Hmm. And so I had heard there's this activist named Dream Hampton, who is a friend of John Legend's. And she was talking on a podcast that I love uh, called Politically Reactive, which got so big, they don't even have to do the podcast. Now they've got like TV shows and everything. Right. But anyway, it's still worth going back and listening to that podcast because there are so many um, groups that I'm not a part of, but that I want to be an ally to. And I learned a lot about them listening to that. And so Dream was on that show. And she had talked about talking with John about getting involved in the incarceration reform movement, criminal justice movement. And John said, I really want to support that change. And Dream said to him, Okay, then you need to show up for a year and listen. You don't talk. Every time there's a march, a meeting, a speech, some kind of action, you go 
and you stand there and you listen and you'll start to see who's continually showing up, who's on the ground, who are the leaders that make sense to you. And that's how you, and then after a year, if you want to say something, maybe you can't. And so I thought, okay, if, that, if that's what Dream says to do, mm. that's what I'll do. And um, so I started following a lot of different people on social media platforms, trying to learn about their communities, their causes, um, uh, trans women. I didn't know that many trans women. So mm. I thought, okay, I'm going to start following like, trans female activists. So I start understanding the language of their struggle, who are the leaders with Black Lives Matter, I was doing it, um, uh, United Farm Workers, all these different groups. And um, I was sitting in a library and and also I, I share and repost a lot of information that I'm getting from leaders that I trust to try and share with people who follow me. So I got this message from a woman that I follow and. I think she was telling me they were going to go protest Kavanaugh because she wanted me to tweet about it. And I said, oh, uh, I wrote back and I said, oh, cool. That's so cool. Um, who are you going with? And she put this list of big hitter women that I follow from all different groups. And so then I wrote, I was like, wow. So then I wrote back to her and I said, mm, maybe I could come get arrested with you. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So then... My husband and I had made an agreement that we would never get arrested if the other one wasn't in the same city. Because you need somebody maybe to come and bail you out mm. or call a lawyer or something. Mm. You need somebody on the outside. Of course, yeah. And I was going to get arrested in Washington. And at the time, he was filming in Utah. And so I, I called him at work and I said, hey, sorry to bother you. Um, you don't have to answer this right now, but just put it on the back burner and think about what we talked about over dinner. I think I'm going to fly to Washington in two days and get arrested with like Elise Hogue from NARAL and Winnie Wong from the Bernie campaign and uh, voter pro-choice, Heidi is going to get it. Like, and I said, so just, I think I'm going to, I wasn't sort of asking permission. I was sort of just doing like family meeting check-in, you know, take the temperature. And he didn't hesitate. He go, he said, why did you think about it? Go for it. That's great. And I was like, yeah. And I thought that my instinct was that and that he felt that way, although I was scared kind of as a person to mm. put my body on the line, I had that energy of mm. like, this is a good decision. Mm. This is a good decision. And he confirmed it so quickly, and I trust his judgment, and I trust these women. And I thought, yeah, yeah I'm nervous, but that shouldn't stop me. Yeah. And how was it? Scary. Yeah. It's really scary to stand up in the Senate Hart building and interrupt Chuck Grassley. Mm. I don't like him that much, so then it feels mm. worse. You know, like if I'm interrupting Kamala Harris, I can be like, excuse me, Senator, I love you so much. I just went, may I interrupt you for <laughs> Senator Grassley? I'm like, um, and there was a, a Muslim woman activist uh, who's head of one of the heads of Women's March who stood up two women before me. And I saw Capitol Police looking at her as we walked into the Senate Hart building and they knew who she was and she wears hijab so she's very recognizable. And she stood up two women before me and when they, when she stood up and they went to take her out, they threw her to the ground. And I was like, oh, it's gonna go like that. I mean, I was nervous. and I. I thought, like, this is so weird that you pulled her to the ground because the room is full of press. You couldn't be safer getting arrested when you're surrounded by the press, yeah. you know, because the police know. But I, when I saw her go down, I 
got nervous, but she's been arrested a lot, so she knew what she was right. doing. And, um, you know, they take your, they take you out of the room and they take your belongings and they handcuff you and bring you to the basement and load you into, um, paddy wagons. And one of the police, uh, officers who was in charge in the basement when they were loading, I mean, there are hundreds of women that got arrested that day and they were all coming down in elevators as they were pulling us all out of the rooms. And, um, one of the police officers, he said, well, it's all women. And like, it's only women getting arrested. And one of the women said, all women all day. And I was <sighs> like, and then we were, as we were being loaded into the trucks, I heard a woman, there's like a metal wall, you are sat on a long bench, and then there's like a metal wall between you and the bench facing you and the police truck. And this woman started kicking the wall and singing that Beyonce song, Who Runs the World, mm. Girls, Girls. Mm. And I was like, I think I'm like really with these people. Mm. You know, like it was, there was solidarity there and a sort of, a sort of like, we're okay. Yeah. We're on the right side of this. Yeah. You should ask other activists who've been arrested in the city or town where you're getting arrested because it's different from state to state and how law enforcement reacts. Like, for instance, I had asked so many people who had already been arrested in Washington for public protest, what's the process? How long am I going to be in jail for? How much bail money should I bring? Do I need to bring cash? What should I have with me? Like, I really Girl Scouted mm, how to get arrested in that city. And it's different in every city. And so I knew I needed $50 for my bail, and I brought another $50 in case somebody else needed it. My driver's license, cell phone battery, cell phone. And I didn't have anything else on me. Like, I was really ready. And they said, you know, it'll take about three hours and... Uh, one pregnant friend of mine was going to get arrested, and she was like, can I bring snacks? <laughs> I said, they'll take them away from you eventually. But so she I needs eat them, them at the right? top of the arrest. Yeah. And she was like, what about have to pee? And I was like, I think if you're pregnant, you could ask to be handcuffed in the front. And they'll probably take them off so you can pee. And she was like, are you sure I can pee? And I was like, pretty sure. Wow. She was like, okay. But so you should do like ask other activists in your community mm before you just go fling yourself into the street. Mm, mm. Do your work. Yeah. I think for, for so many of us, watching all of these things play out, and, and really for me, it always comes down to the inhumanity. Like, it, it doesn't quite make sense that somebody wants to take the rights away of a certain gender or a certain group or a certain... Like, getting my head around wanting to impose force, control and will and divide people in that way, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that's the truth for a lot of people. But I'm curious, like, what did it feel like in that room with the Kavana hearings? What did it, what was the feeling in that room? I mean, obviously you would have had adrenaline running because of what was about to happen, but I'm curious, how did it feel in there? Tense. I saw the female senators walk in. Kamala Harris had just been put on the Senate Judiciary because Al Franken had left the Senate mm -hmm. because of his Me Too allegations. Mm. And, um, and so Senator Harris had gotten that seat on the judiciary. And so I saw like Maisie Hirono walk in, Senator from Hawaii, I saw Booker walk in. And I knew that these were people who believed the same things I believed. And of course I had, I had never sat in a Senate hearing before. So maybe they're always that full of purpose when they walk into a Senate hearing, but this felt particularly focused. And the room was just packed. Hmm. I mean, so many reporters, so much police, really, really tight. And as it began, 
both Harris and Hirono interrupted Grassland, said they hadn't been given enough information and we needed to stop this hearing. And so you could feel this was a thing that didn't want to move forward. People wanted this to stop, but he was going to push it forward. Mm. And so then you feel the volatility in that. You know what I mean? Mm, totally. Yeah. It's interesting. You just mentioned Me Too. If we can just slightly jump over there, because, I mean, that has been such a huge, um, huge debate, uh, opening of awareness and vibe that's been going on for the last few years and you're right in the middle of the Hollywood community and friends with lots of other actors and actresses. How has that been from your perspective? I mean, clearly it's a really, um, it, it's a game changer, but I'm, I'm curious what it's been like to be in the industry going through that. It's been upsetting because I didn't, I didn't even know how rampant it was. And I, I mean, people like Harvey Weinstein, like when I was, became a professional actress when I was 21 years old, Right away, people were telling me, like, never be alone in a room with him. Wow. Never, so no never go, never take a drink from him. Never be brought into any sort of separate space. So 20 years ago, this was of course. in the conversation. And there were other people like that, some who've been accused and some who have not, that as a young woman, I was warned by people in the industry or people I worked with, you know, be careful there, be careful there. But I didn't realize how big it was and how horrible it had gotten. And I heard, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, who's running for president, was just asked about this recently because uh, there was a New York article talking about Franken saying he wished he had not uh, resigned his Senate position before there had been an ethics hearing. He wished he had stuck it out through an ethics hearing. And they were saying to her, um, do you wish you hadn't called for his resignation? Looking back at one of, of the eight allegations, one of them is now questionable. And she said, he's entitled to an ethics investigation, and that isn't my decision, and he's entitled to make his own decisions, but what he's not entitled to is my silence. And I thought, like, that's well said. And that's what I feel like is this movement of Me Too, is our, our jobs are not beholden by our silence. Mm. And we have to risk the threat of being fired because, I mean, like, what's a job compared to your sort of bodily autonomy and safety, and especially that of others? Yeah, and I, I think the, the interesting thing about Hollywood being a focal point is obviously most people who work in Hollywood are privileged in a, a very well-paid, well-garlanded, well-acclaimed um, industry. And actually, the, you know, the Me Too movement, may, maybe that's one of the focal points, but it, it, it's beginning to change the landscape everywhere for, for women everywhere in every... Well, women and men. Yeah, women and men. And because Hollywood and also politics, people have these big platforms that they don't necessarily have in the financial sector or in restaurants or farm work, we can sort of... Um, uh, speak out and get these big megaphones because these weird platforms we get with our profession. And so use that thing that we get that's sort of weird in America. Like you yeah. get this big platform because you're an actor as opposed yeah. to like, shouldn't the teachers have the big yeah, platforms yeah, or something, yeah. you know? But so maybe we can use that platform for change for, for the good. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's funny, this, this comes to mind this morning, I was at the gym and um, over on the other side of the gym, I saw a guy um, rubbing a woman's back and I saw her body just kind of slightly bristle, but I saw her smile and I was like, wow. And, and to is. be fair, the guy, he probably looked 70. So I thought, okay, he's of a generation, 
not saying it's okay, but he's of a generation where that was a bit more normal, a bit more kind of what happened. And I, I just saw it's so interesting how differently you see all of those things now because of the awareness that's come it out. It really changes the lens. And yeah. I've been on, I was on a set this was about a year ago, and the first assistant director, who's like a pretty powerful job, he said the first day, he was like, good morning. And he just threw his arms around me and really hugged mm. me tight to his body. And I was so uncomfortable, but I was sort of surprised. And there was a lot of people on the set and I didn't say anything. But I thought about it through the day and I was like, that really is inappropriate. And I didn't give him, I don't know him. I didn't yeah. give him any permission. This is a workplace. And so the next day, he came to me and he was like, good morning. And I was like, I don't like to be touched. <laughs> and he said, oh, like I had insulted him. Yes. And he said, oh, I didn't know that. And I said, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then later in the day, he said, well, I'll see you later. And he opened his arms again. Wow. And I said, remember? And he was like, oh, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, I remember. Like, I was hurting his feelings. He was kind of shaming me, you know? But I thought, well, as the lead actress on here, like, I'm, my position is really safe. So I can establish this kind of model, this behavior, because he can't get rid of me. Totally. So it's a sort of privilege that I can leverage so that we're not just all throwing our bodies on top of each other. And he was of that generation, you know? Yeah, totally. It's, yeah, it's, it's, the, the, the change is going to be slow in some areas, but at least it's, at least it's happening, at least it's in the conversation. And I think personal boundaries are such a tricky thing anyway. Mm. I think, you know, boundary, I've worked in the self-growth field for 15 years now, and boundaries was one of the things that I had to learn so well because when I didn't have boundaries, you know, whether it was in business, in romantic relationships, in friendships, all kinds of awful things happened to me. And now it's one of the things I teach other people to have. And, you know, it's being willing to be disliked or unpopular or to ruffle somebody's feathers in order to stand for what you know is true for you in that moment. And I think that's often the thing that especially girls are talked out of, you know, be nice, smile more. You know, it's such right. a cliche, but that's kind be of... Be polite. Be polite, be friendly, make sure that, you know... So He I, means well. Exactly, like, exactly. What he means. Yeah. But I would imagine with your job, because people must feel so emotionally intimate with you because of what you do, that it can make the physical boundaries a little more confusing for them? Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. There have been a few times when I've done, like, meet and greets after events, and, you know, un understandably, people feel a connection to you if they've seen the videos. And there have been a couple of times that people have been a little inappropriate with the way they've hugged me, and I've, like, literally had to kind of go, oh, hang on a second, what was, what was that? And so, yeah, I think you do... I, I don't know. I guess it's like any job where... Um, you are in, uh, I don't even want to use the word authority role, but to some degree, it's like a teacher. There's a certain level of, I think, um, permission that you have to be a guardian of in case the other person can't be. It's like you have to kind of, I have to instill the boundary in my work. I see. So I have to help people who are at my events, you know. I have to say, oh, here's, here's the boundary of, I, I have to kind of, step into that. When I didn't before, it was very problematic and it would cost me, it would cost the, the, um, the dynamic of the group. So I think actually boundaries are leadership. Exactly what you said, you had to do that with the AD. I kind of have to do that with participants at my live events sometimes to help them understand what the parameters are if they're not somebody who's already coming in with those really strongly. Can I ask you one more question yeah. about like your live yeah. events? Um, after you do a lot, I mean, like, I feel like there's a lot, I haven't been to one, but I feel like there'd be a lot of kind of energy and exchange going on yeah. and 
people are having these revelations and it kind of puts a lot on you. Maybe a lot of pe people stuff they're sort of putting on you. When you have a work day like that, especially a live work day, what do you do like to cool down at the end of the day or like after a work event? Yeah, I think if I'm on it, um, I will just be quiet and mm -hmm. I will be by myself. I think the times when I have tried to overextend or, you know, go out for dinner with friends after an event or something, I, I'm like hit by a truck the next day. So it's normally for me, it's because those kinds of um, events energetically are, are essentially becoming quite extrovert. It's the most extrovert I become. Um, I then go very introvert for a few days and kind of, if I can, just kind of quieten down and recover so that my energy can build up again. But also kind of what you said about people having revelations. I think when you've done this kind of work for the number of years I've done, I've now got to a position where I can be mindful and respectful of what's going on for somebody if they come up to me with googly eyes. You know, they come up because they've just had this epiphany and they might be attributing it somewhat to me. Right. It's also, I can totally respect where, where they are because I've been that person. I've gone up to the workshop leader in my early 20s. Oh my God, you just changed my life. And, and, and I know that's their truth, but I also know it's really important that I do whatever I can to just help them honor that in themselves and kind mm. of, you know, not in any way take that from them. And I've seen workshop leaders who use it to feed their own ego and it's, it's horrible to see it backfires for everybody. So I feel like I had some good, uh, bad examples early on <laughs> to see what was like, oh, you know, you mustn't, there's an energy here that isn't yours, that's nothing to do with you. You were just maybe the catalyst for it and you can gently help them put themselves back together and walk off as to the best of your ability. Uh, yeah. That's so interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm interested in how people, I feel like, America, maybe other countries are better, but like America doesn't do a great job with like what you're supposed to do at the end of your day. Like yeah. people just like make a martini like it's 1950 <laughs> yeah. or they like turn on the screen and television and yeah. you're like, Netflix neither one of those or, things yeah. is gonna really chill it down. But know? it must be very similar for you because I imagine if I've identified with you in a movie or, you know, and I'm like, oh, you know, people having emotional reactions because of what your energy and your character in that story did for them, it's almost like a recall happens in the body. They see you. Oh, you know. And they think I'm the, I mean, not logically, but somehow emotionally, they're actually connecting with the character, the character and how that character spoke to their own experience. So they want to share how they are, they connected to that person but depending that character but depending on the environment i'm not even anticipating they say piper which is not the name if they went and said to me like oh nora or whoever the name of the character was it would be easier to identify them but sometimes yeah. people say oh, piper and i'm like i don't know you and as a young person i used to think like how do i know you yeah of course and now i realize like oh i don't know you <laughs> <laughs> yes and they think they know you which is understandable but right. yeah yeah but they think but they think they know me, who is that character that they saw. It's really yeah, weird phenomenon. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you this because I began as, as, as an actor, as a kid. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for me, one of the things I love about acting and um, why I think I so connected with it is, it's, to me, it's shamanic. You mm. become someone else. You might be blowing up a certain aspect of your own personality. You might just be entering into a kind of state of this character in this story. And it gives you this incredible experience for your own life and your understanding of human psychology, human emotions. What is your favorite aspect of, of being an actor and a storyteller? 
I mean, that aspect of getting to live as someone else, mm. I love, especially the farther it is away from the experience that I'm living in this body. I love it. It's like real tourism in like a better way than like, there's no boat that takes you there, you know? Um, I also really like the research when I'm doing, like I did, when I did Covert Affairs, we, we shot in 35 different countries. Wow. And some of the places that we went to would never have been a place that I would have gone on vacation or, I mean, maybe eventually, but I, it wouldn't have been in my first 20 next places to go. So by acting, I get shipped to these sort of interesting places that I wouldn't have chosen. And so then to be, when I travel, I like to over prepare. I mean, I love to have like so much research about a place because I'm so curious and I want to understand like, why is the city called this? What, why is this the old town? Why are the streets like this? Who's the most famous person? What are the books written? Like, I just want to know the food and the music and I want to hear the music. So I do a lot of research and I like that I get thrown into research that I wouldn't have chosen mm. because it brings so many new ideas. You know, we have like certain tastes and, and preferences and so you end up repeating those a little bit. Mm. But with acting, like right now I'm doing... Um, this new Penny Dreadful, which mm -hmm. is like a Showtime show. And it's it's the same creator as the first one, but this one is set in 1938 LA. And the woman I'm playing um, is a drunk. And my husband is a Nazi sympathizer, mm -hmm. which was happening in 1938 Los Angeles. And like, I didn't know that. It was happening. And just beginning the research of that is mind-blowing. Wow. And it's so dark, but I'm fascinated. And it's been just such a fun thing that's been going on recently. As I sort of, when you see the maps, the highways weren't built yet. I was talking to this one um, historian who was saying the L.A. highways are basically a quarantine system to isolate the marginalized communities of the city. And wow. if you look at a map, how they built them, Boyle Heights, Belvedere Heights, they're isolating the Latino community, the African-American community in order to separate this area. And I thought like, oh my God, I had no idea. And I've been driving on these highways for 20 yeah. years. So I would never have looked at that but I'm so glad to dig into it and understand it better. Totally, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And what about skills? Because I know you've had to learn various different skills over the years. Yeah, I like the skill part because I sort of liked, uh, I like sort of jumping into a deep end. I find that kind of a thrill. So a lot of times I'll say I know how to do something for a movie and I don't know how to do it. And then I will spend the next month just doing it seven days a week, all day long with like the best teacher one-on-one -on -one that I can afford. And then sometimes I'm in a place where like, for instance, I said my husband is shooting um, like a Western in Utah right now. Mm -hmm. And um, there's all these incredible horses and uh, horse masters on the show. And I said to them, like, what is the main skill that you guys all do with, the, what are these horses best at? And they said, cutting. And I said, I don't even know what that is. And they said, cowboys need to be able to separate um, a sick uh, animal from the herd. And so that's called cutting, when you sort of isolate them and move them out so that you can give them medicine or whatever. And, I, and so I said, oh, can I learn how to do that? I don't really know if I am ever gonna need to know how to do it, but if you're in a place where the these amazing cutters and these amazing cut horses are, I just want to 
see it. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that curiosity really fuels your career in a brilliant way. It's yeah, it's it's one of the best parts. Yeah. Well, I can see it gives you a joy and a spark. And knowing other actors, I know that's not true for everybody. It's like you know, I know. Oh God, I've got to fly here, and I've got to be. But I think that curiosity has put that's you like in really good. I, mean, I yeah, really do like that. Part. Really in good stead. Do you have ways to kind of? I mean. You clearly like the traveling, but do you ever find there are certain things you've had to adopt to kind of keep the Piper part of Piper when you're going to a foreign place and with a brand new crew and in a brand new, like, you know, are there things that you've learned to get good at to kind of hold on to you when you go? Totally. It was a big part of my 20s was learning how to do that. And um, I think the research of a city helps me sort of become a citizen of that city. You know, when I went to um, Bucharest for the first time, like I, I knew that it, um, Romania is because of the Romans and the, 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 the myth of the wolves that start Rome. And so when I drove past the statue of the mother wolf with Romulus and Remus underneath her, I thought like, oh yeah. You know, like the research helps ground me in the city so I don't feel foreign, I feel like I'm learning it more. Yeah. So doing the research ahead of time helps me with traveling. And then also, um, for a long time, and still, I listen to these bootleg cassettes by Ram Das, mm. and he talks a lot about the puja table that he travels with. And have you ever heard these talks? I uh, know I haven't. You know who he but is? I, yeah, totally. But I've so, never heard the bootlegs. Oh, they're so good. And if uh -huh. you go on his website, there I think most of them now have been people just like start sending them, sending him their bootleg cassettes so that he could. They're on the website, so you can listen That's to great. all these talks. But he would talk about, <laughs> when he talked about, he would talk about his puja table and how it, like he made it so it's travelable. And puja is just like your altar in your, in your home and you can have fruit there, incense there, because he comes out of an Indian, like Hindu tradition. And then also like pictures of the people that you're sort of in love with. So like he would have like a picture of Jesus or his guru, Mana Maharshi. He had like a, he had a picture of like, some like po politician that he didn't like, who was like the head of defense in the 70s, can't remember his name, but he didn't like him so much that he cut his picture out of the newspaper and put him in his puja table so that he could like learn to love him. Wow. So that when he would like, in the morning when he would sit, he had to like take him in just like he's taking in Jesus or Ramana Maharshi, mm. which I thought was a really cool practice. But he said he was, he was staying in this one motel in some like terrible town and he was like, so like depressed and this place where he's staying was not that nice and he'd set up his puja tail but the rest of the room was kind of and he walked in the hotel in his room and he was like and then he's like I gotta, I gotta do better so he turns around and he walks back into the hallway and then he walked in and he opened the hotel room door and he goes I'm home and he felt like just saying that wow made like he was making it into totally. what he needed it to be. And I know it's, it's kind of silly and childish. No, it makes total sense to me. it really does feel good when you're traveling someplace that you don't mm, feel so great about. That like silly Bravo, like, I'm home, yeah. just feels like you change the space, you totally. know? That's fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> it's so funny. No, I love it. That's so, no, no, I, I, and, and I think a lot of the people who are watching this will totally be aligned with that too. So. Just to kind of conclude, I could talk to you all day. I know, so, it's so thank fun. you. This has been a beautiful conversation. And thank you for sharing so much about what it is that you're doing. But I'm curious to ask you two final things. Same question, but slanted in two different ways. What are you excited about for your personal journey as a creator in this world? And what are you excited about for the world in the years to come? What positive 
transformation do you see happening that you're excited to see more of? So we can we can start with either the world or your personal. I mean, in my work, I'm excited to try and produce. Mm. I see the power in the sort of um, creator mind of a producer. You choose the story that we're going to tell mm. and how we're going to tell it. And I think that's an, a next step that I'd like to try. I might not like it, but I think I'll give it a whirl. That's cool. Uh, and for the world, I think one of the things I'm really excited about is the engagement of young people in the political system. Whether it's Greta Thunberg, who's the environmental activist who's only 16, or the Parkland kids. Jay Margolin is an um, environmental activist from California. I really see a concerted, focused effort by young people to engage in the political debate. And partly, I think, it's because of the fear of Trump, mm. but it's activated a generation. And they may not always get it right. You know, people can knock the Parkland kids, although I think they're geniuses, and say, like, oh, you know, they're, put they're just putting, like, drag queen gifts on social media, even though I think that's, like, really funny and cool <laughs> uh, and smart. Um, and, and I love it. But... Um, they're practicing their belief system and speaking about it at such a young age. Mm. I think it's going to make for an incredible generation as they come into more power and knowledge. And so, you know, like when we are old and elders, I have a lot of faith that we're going to be able to really like kick it because these kids have some really strong ideas and they're not afraid to speak out. Yeah, no, I, I, I so agree with you about them being young and practicing because I think... One of the things when I work with people who want to do work in the world that impacts the world, entrepreneurs, creators, one of the fears that comes up is, oh, what if people don't like me? Or, and I, I, I always say, hey, the, you can't do something in the world and have everybody like you. You just can't. And actually, that's when you know that you're doing something that is kind of making an impact. So go through whatever personal stuff you need to go through to get to the point where you see that as just par for the course. I think these younger people doing what they're doing now, they're learning that early so that the older they get too and the more knowledgeable they get and the more wisdom and power that they accrue through their life, that stuff is just going to be, they're going to be, oh yeah, I, I, I learned that when I was 18. And, it, and I think I love their commitment to practicing it. Mm. Like I think people want to enter a scene like a star, be ready, mm -hmm. be perfect, but like nobody does that. No. That's a myth. Yeah. And you have to practice and a little failure is good. You're going to learn so much and nobody's going to shut, like be conscientious and knowledgeable when you begin, but be, it's okay to fail because you're just practicing. So true. And isn't life just practicing every single day? Like every we're all just thing. doing the best we can and making up as we go along. <laughs> totally. So thank you so much for being here. Thank it's you, been me. awesome. And good luck with all you're doing. And thank you for doing what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me and talking with me. You have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com. And to attend my five-day Impact the World in-person training event held in Scottsdale, Arizona in April 2020, visit leeharrisenergy.com forward slash impact. Impact.